the incomparable. Number 257, August 2015. Welcome back, everybody, to the Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We are going to convene a meeting of our comic book club. And uh, as always, I, I will say what we try to do with the comic book club is have this be something that you can go out and read and get a story. You don't have to read a thousand issues of history to understand what's going on. And so our comic book club selection for this episode is Runaways, uh, which is available in many different formats, uh, including an omnibus version of the first 18 issues called The Complete Collection Volume 1, which amuses me. Um, <laughs> it's not complete unto itself. It's just Volume 1. But it, it is the mm-hmm. first 18 issues of the first volume from 2003 of Runaways by Brian K. Vaughn, who we've talked about on pe- previous episodes of The Incomparable, um, and uh, a few uh, a few different illustrators, I think, but um, uh, primarily Adrian Alfona. And uh, it's a uh, spoiler alert. It's really great. So you should read it and then you should listen to this episode, which you're doing right now. Let me introduce the panelists on this episode of the Comic Book Club. Of course, always here for Comic Book Club. It's Lisa Schmeiser. Hi, Lisa. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we get to talk about Runaways. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, also joining us, Shannon Sutter is here. Hello. Hola, frikis. So, so you and did you and your husband have to like uh, flip a coin? Because I, I know you both uh, wanted to talk about this, but but we sent Chip yeah, away. Chip, Chip was a gentleman. He graciously thought that for once I should get to have the fun on talking on it, a real incomparable and not just all the game shows. All right. Well, uh, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you. And Chip can listen later. Uh, Tony Sindelar is also out there. Hi, Tony. Hello, nerds. And Dan Morin. Uh, was I not supposed to read a thousand issues of comic books? Because I think I did something wrong. Yeah, that's okay. You could do that. It's just not required. It's optional. I'm reading them right now. No, yeah, well, that happens. <laughs> you gotta get. You gotta also, get... I'm taking issue with Shannon's real incomparable versus game shows. Please, huh. please. It's all in the family. Isn't this the flagship though? Yeah, but it, what, the other shows are real. They're, they they're real. Oh, this they're is, very real, and they're I very. I post fun. them on the internet. Just, <laughs> it's okay, Dan. We like your we like your your game it's show. Okay, it just I'm doesn't. Just a little just, sensitive right now. It just doesn't count, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> by the way, people should listen to uh, Dan's game show, uh, which is uh, called Inconceivable, and is in the Incomparable Game Show podcast. Yeah. So go listen to that. There's a plug. It's a lot of fun. Are you happy now, Dan? Uh, thank you. All That's right, very it's cool. okay. <laughs> out Sindelar or should I say not Tony no wait you not, no actual Tony I like when people refer to me by my last name it feels like we're at like some kind of like 1920s prep school mm. you know like, yes. let's, let's go uh, play lacrosse and make anti-semitic jokes this is great be a good chap uh, Sindelar <laughs> let's all lurk about in trees and watch the golden boy on the field <laughs> so Runaways one of the one of the things I love about Runaways and um I, we've mentioned it on a previous podcasts is that this is uh set in the Marvel universe published by Marvel Comics and yet is a, a real original work and um, in fact, I, I've cited it several times as the kind of thing we don't see from the major comic book co- publishers very much anymore, which is a whole group of brand new characters created by a very talented writer uh, and the and, and owned by one of the big comic book publishers. Because the rule now is basically don't do this <laughs> for the Brian K. Vaughn should have created them in their own universe and walked away with all the rights to them and sold it to make a movie or a TV show. But for whatever reason, this is part of the Marvel universe and they use that to their advantage from time to time. But 
Uh, but it, it, it's not something that that requires your knowledge of Marvel Comics history. It really does read like uh, an original work that just happens to be set in the Marvel Universe. And that's actually one of the things I love about it. It's because of the origin story for the comic. Yeah, the, the tsunami wave. The tsunami, that, um, yeah, where they were basically like, if, if we can make comics that are the size that girls can put in their purse, I kid you not, and um, and make them think we it's like the manga. manga crowd. Yes. Ah. Then, then we can grab manga and we can use these titles too as a bridge into the Marvel verse, which is why there are actually like some tie-ins, you know, like the presence of mutants and yeah, cloak and dagger appears and cloak point. and tie, yeah, and uh, you know, Captain America pops up at the end of it. But it was um, the tsunami thing was was a short-lived initiative to try to pull in female comic readers because this is back, this is back in the very early oddies when comic book sales were tanking big time. And the idea of a comic book movie was mostly a joke, and publishers are freaking out over declining sales. And they very correctly discerned that one of the reasons sales were going down is because comics weren't really appealing to females. And so they thought, well, we'll just give we'll give them a comic they can fit in their purse. And um, Tsunami <laughs> didn't do well. It like shut it. The imprint shut down fairly quickly, if I remember correctly, because most girls were like, I, I don't give a crap if it's in my purse or not. I give a crap if it's good. Runaways is good, and that's one of the reasons it's it's since bounced around the Marvel verse a little bit, but I feel like it's been mistreated. I, I feel like mm. the character has been mistreated compared to when they were off doing their own little bubble thing for the first like 18 to 36 issues. Well, yeah, this is, this is uh we can talk about this. This, this is a self-contained story. And then they sort of, you know, then they're part of the intellectual property of the Marvel universe and can be integrated elsewhere. But here they get the, they get their own through line. And one of the things I really like about issues one to 18, this first volume is that it's telling it's telling us a story, and it's about the characters we're introduced to, and it's a great, it's a great. Should I should I explain the premise of Runaways now? Would that would that make sense to do? Yeah, it, it's it's the most simple. Sure. It's the most simple of premises in a way. Um, imagine that a group of kids uh, discover that their parents are supervillains. I mean, that's the simplest way to describe it. And um, and they do run away from home, but it turns out that they also have special abilities of their own, and they uh, eventually decide to basically take the fight to their parents, because if their parents are going to be evil supervillains, then they need to stop them to save the world, which they the parents are literally plotting to... Um, to, to to end all human life on planet Earth. And so they have to stop them and get to know each other better because they've just been sort of like forced together because their parents are friends or it turns out conspirators, co-conspirators. And uh, and then the fun begins, basically. And uh, and it's a lot of fun. It's just so smart and so sharp in places, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am shocked that this hasn't been made into a into a movie or a TV series. I, I, I'm like it was supposed to be. And then it got it. You know, it turns out they're making all the other Marvel stuff. It got bumped, and then yeah. I think it got killed eventually. But there was there was a specific yes. plan. There was a screenplay, and then the, and then yeah. the Avengers made a billion dollars, and they decided they were going to ride all of the uh, regular characters. And yeah. mm -hmm. and although Guardians of the Galaxy got made, this one got put into turnaround, and and um, it's a mystery now about what might happen to it and whether. But it's it's funny. This story is such it's such a great story. I could not when reading it back. Um, this weekend in, in advance of this, I could not stop thinking about what a great uh, film or TV series property this is. And it's just sitting there. It would make an excellent CW style series. Since, <laughs> well, it would. Since mm -hmm. the, yeah, no, I, yeah. you're right. I'm laughing because that's a, that is a good fit. You're totally right. And um, it, I, I definitely would push for a TV series over the movie. Um, what I was thinking about is when I reread was 
how freaking smart Vaughn and his editors were because this this entire series is perfectly pitched to the teenage sensibility where, you know, every teenager has that moment where they're like, oh, my parents are of the devil or what have you. And in this case, it's the actualization of that. But by the end of it, you see how much these parents, despite being people who have bargained to, to give the earth to ancient alien entities, you see how much they love their kids because the deal they made with the the deal they made with the aliens slash gibberim gibberim whatever you want to call them earlier was we 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 prep the world for you we get twenty five years and in return half of us get immortality and the originally like the the group of twelve adults they're like fine you know we'll we'll, we'll deal with who gets immortality later we have twenty five years to scheme against each other what happens and then one one of the couples falls pregnant and all six couples spontaneous basically spontaneous to say you know what. We don't care if we get killed at the end of us as long as our children get a shot at immortality. And then at the end of it, the parents all go down fighting against the people they made bargains with. And I thought, well, that's it's a really smart coming of age, necessary psychic separation of parents, seeing your parents as people, seeing the unconditional love your parents still have for you no matter what. And I thought it's a really psychologically reassuring book to kids or, or rather to teenagers. It's really smart how he wrote it like that where there's a whole lot of who am I, what am I doing? But at the same time, I mean, sure, their parents are super villains, but they're, they're super villains who really love their kids. And well, that's reassuring on some level, you the, know? So maybe for Chase's parents. I think his mom loves him. I yeah. think his dad's <laughs> his just dad, up. Well, his dad yeah. is awful, but yeah. Yeah. You had to have one like that. First but. time we see see those two, he's getting punched by his father. His dad, yeah. yeah. His dad is basically like a he's, he's he's his dad would be at home in like the Hank Pym universe, but um, I really lo- <laughs> I, I really love how how the Creed turned into or turned out to be like soap opera stars, and there's just so many sly there's so many sly and funny touches. The dialogue is 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 age is age realistic in a lot of ways, especially when the kids try and code names and they're just so hilariously dorky and wrong. And that is something I love about this book: um, the way it plays with the superhero tropes through these kids' eyes. Uh, first, all of them except Alex adopt these rather silly code names. And by the end of the like first volume or the middle of the second um, half of the um, 18 issues, everybody pretty much has dropped them except uh, except Gert. And she hangs on to hers for a while before she finally you know throws her hands up in the air as well. Um, and of course, little Molly is the only one who, you know, she actually goes and makes a costume from the scraps she finds around their hideout. Um, you know, she's 11, you know, that would be what she would think of. Um, the others don't bother. It's all about trying to survive. Since you have that lens of the Marvel universe, because this is set in a universe where superheroes are real, um, Mm -hmm. coming up Mm -hmm. with code names is, is comical to us as the outsider, but not necessarily comical to them because they have all these, these exemplars to, to pattern after like the first, the opening scene we see is, you know, Alex playing some like MMO basically that's all Marvel superheroes. Right. Right. Um, And so having that, (laughs) it's a fact of life there, right? Like it's a fact of life that there are superheroes and that they, you know, they, they have monikers that they adopt. And so, you know, that makes it perfectly natural for them to pattern themselves after that. Even if it does come across sounding, I really love my personal favorite is that, um, now I've forgotten the character's name, um, whose sister Grimm, Yes, um, Nico. Oh, Nico. 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 Yeah. Nico. Nico chooses that because it's her AIM handle. I was like, "That's mm-hmm. yep, okay, that's yep. yeah." You nailed the teenage thing there. Yeah, welcome to two thousand three. <laughs> but then again, short attention spans. Like I said, you know, they pretty much you know stop using yeah. them fairly quickly as right. well, which I think is very in keeping with teenagers' uh, yeah. superhero world being their reality, notwithstanding. 
Because you're always trying on the, the whole point to that age is you're trying on identities and trying to figure out who you want to be versus who you're likely going to end up being. And and there's that whole psychic separation from your parents, too. And then when you find out your parents have been operating as the pride and they all mm. have their own mm-hmm. supervillain super names. Um, I just really liked the fact that they all had such different origins, too, because you've got a pair of space aliens, a pair of time travelers who ended up stranded here because of a broken machine, um, a pair of dark wizards. A pair of um, which is checking all the boxes. Yeah, yeah. A, a pair of mutants, um, just a pair of petty thieves, and I'm missing one. And a pair of genius scientists, and it's basically calling in every single origin story that Marvel has ever had for anyone <laughs> anywhere. So you have also you have all the, the classic comic tropes who you know are are in one reluctant social group. You you and I feel like in in some ways the series also asks what happens when these people become parents. Because um, you don't see a lot of plausible depictions of parenthood on on like the the capes side of the equation, but you see it here with the villains, and that kind of fascinates me how how they did it that way. I just really liked how they showed the development of both the parents over time and the kids over time too, especially the kids. Yes, because the openings are so so very cliche. It, it's like like you said, they're ticking all the boxes because you've got the 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 folks who started out as petty thieves are the ones who are you know telling Alex, you know, you cancel that subscription, young man because we save every dollar that's how we can afford to live here and three panels later his game room has all of these arcade games classic arcane arcade games surrounding so yeah he's spending money um and carolina the the, the actors being she makes so vegan whatever hip, hippy dippy ve- yeah vegan tempeh and yeah you know the, they're just oh, we'll just sprinkle some yeast flakes on it it will taste exactly. delicious uh. and they're like grinning at each other constantly and it's adorable and uh Nico's mom is throwing out her black nail polish because it might cause cancer and death metal. And <laughs> yeah, it's terrific that they start with all of these different prototypes. And as we go through the series, like you said, everybody develops, everybody gets a personality, which is something else I love about how even though you've got all these six kids and, you know, they're all teenagers or preteens. They all still develop their own personalities, their own way of thinking. Uh, you know, Chase may be the dumb jock, but he's the dumb jock who actually has a clever idea once in a while. Things like that are really fascinating. The one I found really heartbreaking um, is Molly, because she's so young. She's not even really in puberty yet, and she has to come to grips with the facts that her parents are, are villains who kill people. And um, it doesn't pop up in this series of 18, but there's a really heartbreaking issue later on in the series run where she falls asleep after one of the fights because Molly has super strength, but it drains her and then she passes out. That's that's the flip side. So she's not invincible. And they, I guess she, I, I guess the other kids put her on a park bench to sleep it off while they take care of something. And she has this dream that her parents are still alive and taking care of her. And she tells him how much she loves them over and over. And and in the dream, she said, I had this terrible nightmare where you guys are villains and we had to kill Mm -hmm. you. And then she wakes up. And like, I remember reading that issue and just being like, (gasps) (laughs) well, they they protect her um, in the first issue. They protect her when they discover the secret passage and they discover that. And they do that consistently. They they they, from that from the first issue, they are taking her. They have Carolina take her back outside so that she can't witness whatever is going to happen next because they know it's going to be something that mm-hmm. that uh, that Molly shouldn't have to see. And she's kind of the last they recruit to the team, right? Well, yeah. it's not that. She's just the youngest and yeah. Yeah, she's the last she's one they 11. get to. Yeah. She's constantly like referring to, oh yeah, our parents, like when are we going to go yeah. home? And they're like, just remember we, yeah, we covered this. Yeah, no, and, and that's something that they actually kept up through the series even after this was the fact that, you know, Molly was really having 
difficulty adjusting this because she was very young and she still needed her parents a lot more, comparatively speaking. And I like that they set up the roots for that really early and kept to it too. Like when she, when they meet up with um, Cloak and Dagger and they t- and, and she gets angry and she rips away Cloak and it turns out he's stammering. She's like, my mom is a speech therapist. She can totally help you. And they're like, they're like, Molly, your mm, mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just such great storytelling because it really twists the knife, you know? <laughs> yeah. And she's the one character I think that, they took a couple of issues to really sort of get uh, the first few issues. She scans younger than 11 to me. Um, yeah. just been, oh, yeah. based on my experience with kids, she, she reacts more like a, like an eight or nine year old, um, for a while. And then, um, and then they start to find their groove and, you know, she starts acting a little, a little more maturely. Um, like you said, or maybe, you know, the fact that, you know, she's coming to grips with all of the things happening around her does that for her. Um, but it, um, they do find her voice, um, the way they do so marvelously for all the other characters. I should note that late in the series, her parents also say Molly tends to present as a lot younger than she is. It's common mm-hmm. for mutants with her level of intelligence. So I I suspect that maybe somebody said to Brian, Kayvon, you realize that 11-year-olds are pretty sophisticated, right? And he's like, oh, crap. Now I have to find an explanation for why I wrote her <laughs> like an 8-year-old. Well, also, Molly, at some point... Um shows a great deal of self-awareness and 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 at some point in here i think she says um something about how you know yeah you know you like it when i say funny things like because i'm a kid and it's it's a very very clear self-awareness that but she also does say a lot of really funny things <laughs> oh, yeah. this is the this is the um uh, she she's not we're not laughing at her but she she has this bizarre worldview and way of phrasing the the situations they get in that's really hilarious mm-hmm. and enjoyable yeah, and plus she wants to marry Wolverine until she meets him later. It's hilarious. Um, oh yeah, because there's and I'm not spoiling anything for anyone, but this comes before the big mutant depowering. Molly doesn't get depowered. Her first meeting with with Wolverine is actually pretty hostile, and she she punches him out of a church. And there's like a panel where you see him flying, and he's like, "Of all the kids who got depowered, why wasn't she one?" And I was like, okay, I, I can accept this development. <laughs> so one of the uh, interesting things about Runaways, too, I think, is that unlike so much of of uh, of especially Marvel Comics, which is so New York-centric, DC Comics has got some stand-ins for New York and some other um, fictional cities. But uh, it's all about New York with Marvel Comics. And this is a story that is set in Los Angeles. and the, West, the, West Coast, best coast. The yeah. pride is uh, in charge of all the crime in L.A. Now, one advantage of doing that is that it allows them to explain that these guys have been here all along doing evil things and we haven't seen them because we don't really pay that much attention to to L.A. in Marvel Comics. But it also is a different... Uh, you know, a different set of uh, of uh, of uh, colors to paint with in the palette, and they and mm-hmm. and I enjoy that about this too. And it oh, works yeah. better in L.A. than it does in New York, I think, because of the culture, um, especially you know having the actors in it and stuff like that. It gives you some <laughs> more license for satire and uh, and and cultural commentary than I think the New York, and, and also in some ways because New York would be so much more crowded. What with all the other superheroes who are on the scene, whereas L.A. does feel, you know, they make fun of the, the West Coast Avengers a bit, but you know, it does feel a lot emptier from the Marvel Universe perspective. Yeah, it's much more spread out, and I think that helps the story as well. Is, is you get a sense it's a very broad canvas that both sides are playing on, as opposed to New York, where you can't round a corner without running into Daredevil. 
Right. <laughs> it's literally everywhere. He's always buying coffee. You can't go to a convenience store in L.A. without running into a vampire. That's what I learned. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, you know, exactly. Important. You know, I, checks out. I enjoy that. That's true to life. True to life. Well, I, I think we have to remember also that this is before the big resurgence of vampires and pop culture. Too. I like was surprised by the vampire appearance, but it's like, you know, I mean, I guess Blade's still out there. He hasn't retired. So there's still there's still vampires. They're yeah. Just, you know, they don't pop up in a lot of Marvel comics, but I like that they had Cloak and Dagger. I thought that was like the perfect level of Marvel hero to, to work in there. Right. That was I felt like that was well selected. And they're kind of kids yeah. too, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yes. The and that was, and they have the runaway, they're the on the run kind yeah. of origin stories, right? So that thematically fits together. Yeah. It um, was also a great way to point out how dumb that origin story is. Yes. And they're like, well, we got kidnapped yeah. by strangers and fed drugs. And they're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> and they make fun of the outfits, which they deserve. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. so, oh, God. Yeah. Yep. They totally do. Yeah. So- sorry, Dagger, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should break down these characters because I think that, that would be a nice way to, to get into some conversations about the, the about the, about runaways. Um, uh, where should we start? Let's uh, let's start. The first one first one we see is Alex, mm-hmm. um, who is playing a uh, an MMORPG of which mm-hmm. he has to explain what it is um, of Marvel of Marvel superheroes, which made me laugh. Because it's, yes. a, it's a total fake out. The art style is completely different and it shows Marvel superheroes and you're thinking, what am I reading here? And it turns out that they're playing uh, that they're playing this game and his dad immediately says, you can't play it anymore. And Alex is, <laughs> you know, it's his house where this all goes down at the beginning. And uh, and he's he's the, you know, kind of super smart computer genius kind of kind of kid who's obviously uh, not not happy with how his parents parents just don't understand him, man. Yeah. And he, we kind of learn that his, I guess over later, that his kind of superpower and that they all get kind of some some kind of superpower is that he is basically a brilliant tactician, right? That's kind of his yeah. good oh, logistics yeah, that's and good at planning. Logic and he's strategy. The, master, the mastermind. Yeah. He, he's architect. basically playing chess in his head every every minute of yeah. the day. One of the one of the older, I think Chase is the oldest, and then Alex is like the second oldest, along with Carolina. Because yeah, because Chase has a driver's license, which seems yes, his, that's, that's right. one of one of his, yeah. his special powers is that he can legally drive a car. <laughs> so yeah, the, so. so we'll we'll bring up the second man in the crew. Um, because Runaways is also unique among Marvel ensembles in that it was um female dominated. Yes, absolutely, yeah, indeed, mm-hmm. very yeah. female dominated. Because there's four girls, two boys. The first boy is Alex. The second is Chase, who is the son of two brilliant scientists. Chase is not left brain like they are, and his father hates slash fears slash resents him for it yeah he's like a golden boy kind of you know captain of the football team kind of kind of guy and not not super smart (laughs) yeah and his dad hates that like he's just a huge disappointment to his dad um so there's chase and he's sarcastic i like Mm -hmm. chase that this is uh i think that one of the ways you you end up liking a character like this who has you know who is this he can drive and he's got he's the you know he's the captain of the football team or whatever he's kind of that character is by putting him with this collection of people who aren't like that and and he also doesn't have any powers he has like some stuff he stole from his parents and so it's an it's an it's a fascinating turnaround where he's not being given enough credit for who he is as a person because he's written off as this as this you know football hero kind of 
guy and uh and he doesn't have power so he's not special like mo- like most of the rest of them and i you end up I, but yeah I he find, gets things done yeah i find i find he i like him a lot which is mm-hmm. uh, it's a neat trick i think to <laughs> yeah. to to bring you all the way around on chase when you should really not like him for all the tropes that he represents and yet in the end um you, you know you end up liking him a lot yeah, he, he's the one who manages to, like you said, sort of falls into success half the time. Half the time he's doing things he thinks that are clever. The other kids are rolling their eyes at him. And then he turns around and um, and winds up producing something, you know, like he's the one who manages to find uh, find Gert's dinosaur uh, towards the end and make a, make a, makes a point of rescuing the dinosaur before he rescues Gert. He's unquestionably loyal in a way yes. that the kids aren't. Like, you get the sense that um, some of the kids would come through for each other much more readily than others. And the thing about Chase is everybody always assumes that he won't. And yet every time he does, and he does so big, like, he comes mm-hmm. through in a big way when he comes through. And he always comes through. He's, 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 I mean, Alex may be the guy who does strategy and tactics, but um, Chase is the guy who manages logistics. And, and I really, you know, he's got a huge heart. And he drives yeah. various uh-huh. vehicles. And he drives. Yeah. In fact, that becomes his power, essentially, right? Is that he's, although he's got some flamethrowing gloves, at some point he also can drive the vehicles. The gloves are kind of cool because it's not just flamethrowing, but like flame conjuring and shaping, which is, I thought, I, I don't know, I thought that was neat. They're, so. they're very cool. They look very exoskeleton y and, uh, very they're very of a time with the with the art too like the when we can talk about the art later but that art just totally screams turn of the cent turn of the century slash turn of the millennium as well it's there's there's a very distinctive style that took over in superhero comics from about 1998 to about 2008 and this is right in the thick of it um but to get back to the characters the third one is carolina who is the uh lanky blonde beautiful daughter of the two soap opera actors and she's a vegetarian and um she's a lesbian and she's also a space alien and she's just this very hippie-ish um Ticks very all the gentle boxes, doesn't it well <laughs> <laughs> well you know rainbow lesbian it was kind of broadcast <laughs> I like, well I, one of the yeah. things I, I like about her power is that she's just she's the way it's portrayed is that the colors just kind of totally wash out from her and kind of override everything you get the you get the sense the way Carolina is is portrayed that she's just really bright like so bright that the camera there isn't a camera it's a comic book but the the camera like can't even deal with the light from it it's, it's just like she glows and suffuses everything with the light which is really um, a lot of, a lot of fun and I, I was surprised in reading this that um, it it is her her um, her lesbianism is an undercurrent from basically right. ep- episode one yeah. issue one, yeah. but it doesn't really get explicitly re- addressed until basically the very end. The very end when yeah. they're like, Nico, we have to talk about your taste in voice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she's so so she's that that's that's fun. And then she's got this extra layer of being. I mean, everybody is um, alienated in some way or other here. For for some reason, they're an outsider. They're an other from their parents, and then in other ways. But I feel like Carolina, in some ways, has it has it the the worst. Um, she is she is. Um, and it's not that she's gay, it's that she's an alien, and it really hits her hard that she's an alien. That is the thing that makes her really feel like an other. Um, and for this, again, like like Chase, this sort of stereotypical, she's blonde and tall and beautiful, um, and her parents are famous actors. Um, sh- she has that interesting uh, journey the other direction, where she's, you know, she feels like, um, like as much of an outsider as you could possibly be, because she discovers she's an alien. 
Well, she's been betrayed mm-hmm. on a bunch of levels because her family betrays her. You know, her parents betray her by, oh, surprise, we're evil. And then, by the way, they also didn't bother to tell her she's not even human. And so she's got these two double whammies to deal with at the same time. And it's it's just such a great metaphor for, um, well, you know, you could say coming out or you could say even just, just deciding to be a different religion or, 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 or a different political affiliation from your parents. It's, and since she gets introduced as a vegetarian as well, it's, it's, I, I feel like that's very deliberate what they're doing there when you have to declare yourself completely independent of your parents' values. Although her parents, yeah, I, I think it's funny because her parents, aren't they, aren't they also vegetarians? Isn't that part of the deal there? I, they're actors. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's so, a so lot quite possibly. Well, they're certainly mm-hmm. supportive of it. I kept waiting not. for her to like eat meat as an act of rebellion, but that didn't Yeah, happen. no, <laughs> no, Gert was the most, Gert, who, who we'll get to Gertrude next. And she's the most overtly rebellious. The reason she sticks with her code name the longest is she's like, I don't want any name that my parents gave me. Well, plus, cause she thinks up, she thinks up a really cool code name. That's got a, a yeah. like with her sidekick <laughs> and all of that, which yeah. we also have to mention her sidekick is a velociraptor. It's a gen- genetically engineered <laughs> dinosaur from the future. Who's telepathically mm-hmm. bonded to her as you yes. do yes yeah. and, and it's, it's, it's like a rainbow velociraptor and it's adorable and um you know she's short and she's purple haired and your total alternate chick she's the book smart one yeah and it, var- it varies with the art art portrayal but we're led to believe that she's not just short but she's overweight she's yeah. she's 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 not portrayed as being attractive in no. the way that most comic book characters are portrayed as being attractive, which this is, you know, one of her various points of alienation. Boy, they've all got something that makes yeah. them feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. But this is this is part of yeah. her. She looks like a normal person instead of just a comic book. Exactly. You know? And yeah. so she feels Mercy. different from from them. And she likes old movies like Arsenic and Old Lace. So she names yeah. herself Arsenic and names her dinosaur Old Lace, which just, and they keep referring to Old Lace throughout. And it just makes me laugh the whole time. Every it's like, time, because they're calling it Velociraptor Old Lace. You give, a, you give a pet a name and that's their yeah. name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's very prickly. Like she's got a lot of emotional armor. She uses her intellect to um, put people on the defensive so that she doesn't feel defensive. Um, you find out that there are actually members of the Pride who don't like her. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. They're like she's their least. She favorite. was the expendable one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She's their least favorite child out of the whole bunch. <laughs> um, <laughs> um. So, but in, in many ways, she is kind of b- because she um, is so vulnerable emotionally in so many ways, um, and because she uses her formidable intellect to as a protective mechanism. It's good that you had they have a distrustful brain in the operation too, because. Alex is a little bit too emotionally removed from everything and, and too high on being the strategist. And uh, Chase and Carolina are very emotional. So having Gert to uh, to bring things home with, with a cynical quip about human nature is... I mean, this is like another great thing about Runaways is it points out how these six kids are such complementary personalities. Like they can squabble, but they still all bring something to the table that everybody else needs. It's It's a beautiful ensemble origin story that way. So um, yeah, she's one of my favorites. In the, in the series. Uh, we have two more. We have um, Nico Minoru, also known as uh, Sister Grimm. The witch. Yes, she's a witch. Uh, she has to <laughs> cut herself for her staff to come out. And she's a goth. So uh, the goths and the cuttings, oh, it's so subtle. <laughs> uh, yeah, that one, uh, that got to me a little bit. They make a direct reference to it. And that is, yeah. it, it's still a little uncomfortable. I agree. It seems. Yeah. yeah. She, mm-hmm. Well, they make direct reference to it when she says she stopped. 
and she's she's had to figure out other ways. Well, right? Doesn't she not cut herself? And and it's revealed the plot twist is that she's got her period, so she doesn't have to cut herself. It's a it's a weird whole little segment there. Yeah, but uh, she the basically the story is is that from one year to the next, she's gone from being a slightly nerdy and withdrawn kid to being a, a goth and therefore frighteningly cool and intimidating. And uh, both Carolina and Alex promptly develop crushes on her. And the thing I've always liked about her magic is like once she uses the spell, she can't use it again. I thought that was a cool, I mean, that was a really interesting take on the idea of like, how do you not make magic all powerful, right? Is yeah, that you, like, you, you put in limits, which I really love. Yeah. And, and, a, mm-hmm. and I thought that was like a really imaginative limit as opposed to like, I can only cast five spells a day or I can only cast a spell every 20 minutes. Like the idea that you can only cast a new spell ever is, I mean, that, I don't know. I thought that was pretty cool. Well, it forces you to think through your magic, which has um, yes. a- always been my big objection to magic in comic books is is people who just kind of randomly like wave their arms out and there's sparkles in the panel and then poof, everyone's a, a rabbit or whatever. And there's not a whole lot of, well, this is the effect or when you push this direction, this is what happens or, or strategy. And um, if I may reference Harry Potter for a moment, one of the first things that um, Hermione, the witch points out in Harry Potter is, well, wizards are smart, but they're not practical they're not strategic and that's how you beat Mm -hmm. them is through strategy and what i liked about the magic in here is that nico has to learn how to use it strategically and and think it Mm -hmm. through and it's just such an elegant twist on on what could normally be oh and now i live through the ether with dr strange and we talk about things so (laughs) so i i liked that a lot um it was very it's smart the same way and um we get to our last character who's molly who we've discussed already who's the 11 year old girl daughter of mutants also mutant with super strength herself and i love the fact that her invulnerability and her super strength take a lot out of her and she passes out and they literally can't wake her up so if they use molly in a fight somebody then is is tasked with carrying around a heavy 11-year-old girl from place to place while she <laughs> sleeps. And I thought that worked well as kind of a mechanic also is that like I feel like Molly as a character really kind of ties them together as like a family, yeah. right? Yes. Because mm-hmm. you because they are teenagers and they kind of squabble and it, it kind of feels like if they didn't have Molly there that they have to like protect and look out for like maybe they could have just all split up and gone their own ways, but it's like yeah. right. Molly's there and like as a group they are collectively responsible for her. You know, and and so that that's an important part of kind of tying them together as they then build on that, right? And that's their right. that's their mm-hmm. being responsible and being parents because their parents that's their growing being, up really fast. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. exactly, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is about the same time in the Ultimates universe, um, when they introduce Wolverine to the Ultimates universe, um, he's a tur- he's a turncoat. There's a lot of plot complications, blah blah blah. But you can tell that he's become part of the group when he goes to do a fight and he screams at somebody, "Cover Kitty's eyes. She can't see this." And he he makes everybody else help him take responsibility for for making sure that she doesn't watch a whole lot of carnage. And so the way they watched out for Molly here, you know, reminded me of that too. Again, from issue one, they are protecting Molly. And I was going to mention earlier, I, I assume everybody, unless perhaps your parents didn't have friends, but my parents had friends, and you inevitably get put together with yeah. their friends kids who are your yep. not your friends but they're your age and i you know we have some friends where w- with kids the same ages as mine and we go over to their house now and it's like i'm doing it to them now um yeah. mm-hmm. but you know 
so yep. so to have that be the root of this at the beginning is also funny because these are these are contemporaries who know each other, but they're not friends. They're not friends when they're put in this situation. And I I kind of love that aspect of it too. That you know, imagine that you know that you end up on the run, not with your best friend from high school, but that you know the girl whose parents were buddies with your parents, and you know that you would have get dragged over to their house, and now you guys are on the run. It's like that's not as as fun a story and i love that about this and they have strong opinions about your parents because they've known them for 10 years yep yeah there's i I love that extra layer of awkwardness that goes in there um it's just such a smart it's just such a smart book on so many levels like from sending up origin stories to to exploring family dynamics to coming of age to putting reasonable limits on what these kids can and can't do um it's no wonder that when um in deep into the second volume of this series when Brian K. Vaughn uh, left that mm-hmm. uh, the first writer who was brought on was Joss Whedon because yeah. – and, and, you know, his issues aren't aren't great. And, you know, maybe at the end we can talk a little bit about, about sort of what has happened to the, the runaways since uh, the, the Brian K. Vaughn left. But I, I, the, this is playing all the same notes that Joss Whedon played with Buffy especially, which is obviously a show near and dear to my heart. But it's the same kind of, kind of bits. And I, that's one of the reasons why um, why I really enjoyed it. Now, we should talk about the big twist that happens in the story. I assume yeah, and everybody what I was going to so, so so we're going to fire off the spoiler horn here. You should really have already read all of this, but um, it, there is one big twist. If you haven't read through to, you know, the last few issues of this volume, uh, I recommend that you do so. It's also on Marvel Unlimited. If you've got that, you can just go read them there or you can buy that volume that I talked about earlier. We're going to fire off the spoiler horn for the big twist. <laughs> Okay, so uh, um, there's a there's a uh, a turncoat in the Runaways who has left n- anonymous notes that nobody can recognize the handwriting, which is kind of funny. Um, mm-hmm. And all the kids, you know, whatever if they have bad handwriting, um, mm-hmm. they all look the same. Saying that they're loyal to their parents and and they um, are not going to go along with the gang. And it's revealed near the very end that it's the first character we meet, Alex Wilder. Who is who believes his parents are because he he saw them earlier. He saw them a year earlier, and and uh, and figured it all out, and thought that they were heroes for trying yeah. to because the way the the gibberim have put it and the, the pride put it is they're saving the world. They're saving the world by killing all the people, but they're saving the world. <laughs> um, the world will be much better when they're gone. He learns about um, the plan of um, a couple of the other sets of parents to to kill everybody else off the a- the aliens and the mutants decide well we're going to betray everybody and kill everybody off and we and our daughters will claim those six spots for immortality and alex manages to learn of this plot and one of his uh goals is to save his parents and eventually he decides nico and her family should get the other other spots so that's also part of it not just that he stumbled across it but he you know he is trying to save his parents just as they are trying to um set it up so that their kids uh, live forever. I'm going to be the naysayer. I don't like this twist. I, also, because I've seen it done in other places, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I really, it just frustrates me whenever you're supposed to be brought into the confidence of someone and it's like, oh, that was all a trick. Like, it, to me, it doesn't necessarily hold water with the rest of the series. It feels like something that was put in to be surprising, but without necessarily the groundwork being laid in the early. Oh, I disagree. Oh, I, disagree. I totally disagree I... with that. There's so many clues 
all the way through the story. And Alex says, he's like, look, the mark of a great game master, a dungeon master, is to always make everybody else who's playing the game feel like they're in control. But but players hate when you rob them of that, to continue the <laughs> D&D metaphor. Like, that's, that's a great way to end that campaign. So, personal experience. <laughs> so, Shannon, Shannon, what are the clues? There's like five or six instances where Alex, mainly when he's talking to Nico, where he's about to tell her something. And they get interrupted. And this is part mm-hmm. of one, one of the, the things to add to Lisa's list from earlier that Brian Vaughn is so good at is the bait and switch. Um, and in this case, you assume Alex is going to say to Nico that he likes her or he loves her or he's attracted to her. And no, apparently he was going to tell her, you know, look, I'm working with my parents. I want to save you and me. Um, mm-hmm. There's like two or three instances where that happens. Um, so I think it is hinted at maybe you know not in a super strong way on the first reading i think it's hinted there i guess i guess i'm kind of on the dan side where i i just i was a little disappointed by it and i mean because i mean we knew there was the the scenes where we we they the parents are reading the notes and so we know this is a thing mm-hmm. and like you know as we're getting closer and closer to the end of the book i'm like well they haven't figured this out yet and i'm like i'm going through the six yeah. characters in my head yeah. trying mm-hmm. to figure out who they are and it's like none of them it makes sense to me. And I get, you know, it fits together that they they have explained the Alex, but I guess I don't like the explanation. Like literally I was thinking like, what if it's the Raptor? That would be really cool. What if the Raptor could talk? <laughs> that would not actually be cool. That would be dumb, but I would like to see the Raptor sipping a cup of tea and explaining his plan. Um, but, but I guess I, I was, I was, there was not any conclusion to that twist that I wasn't going to be a little disappointed by. So, yeah, except no, possibly a raptor me. sipping tea. So, oh, but, and, and like, and with a, please tell me the raptor has a British accent too, because that would be the best. <laughs> of course, my diabolical plan has been well, and he's got the one of his three claws out, pinky style. You know? Exactly. Yes, it's the raptor's like it's basically gorilla grot except in reptile form. And, and, <laughs> and I guess that it's not. It's less the fact that it's not hinted at, because you know Shannon's got a point that there are there are sort of allusions to it, but the fact that it doesn't really make sense to me um, because it's you know, and I understand the idea that he's supposed to be a strategist and and what have you but it seems incredibly convoluted yes. as plans so go. I, i'm gonna i'm gonna go with dan and tony here um i i enjoyed the first time i read it i enjoyed the twist because i didn't see it coming and it was a really interesting twist this time knowing that alex betrays them and reading through it i was looking for signs of his betrayal and reasons why it makes sense and I got to say, yeah, there are some moments where he's going to reveal something. But I look at his overall behavior in the first six issues, let's say, and I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it that he that he was that it was all part of a plot and he was secretly supporting his parents all along. It just doesn't it just doesn't make sense to me. I found that final fight with everybody. A, I thought that was a little unwieldy. And I guess I, I was not as excited about the parents characters because there were so many of them. And I had kind of I mean, <laughs> yes, and they're not. They're not very fleshed out, and some of them are more fleshed out than others. But, like, I guess I found them kind of annoying because there were so many – because there's literally – there's 12 of them, right? Yeah. There's, yeah, it's, they it's were hard to keep straight. When they're wearing costumes. It's either yeah. – and then they <laughs> – but then I found that confusing because then sometimes they're not wearing costumes and even, like, trying to figure out who's who here. And and then then there's – some of them have a conspiracy against the others. Um, like I didn't, but I guess the lead up then that there's this big fight cause it's a comic book. So there's going to be a big fight, but even that felt kind of unwieldy and hard to know what was going on. It's like, well, was really that part of the plan? I, I don't know. It didn't feel super master mighty. So I was, I was a little disappointed by that. No, I get the feeling that it's also supposed to go pear shaped because first, um, 
you you have the the mutant pair and the alien pair planning on killing everybody else mm-hmm. and right sorry as getting- you mixed your pairs there and suddenly i was imagining a mutant like piece of fruit oh yum <laughs> it all goes pear- fruit. it's a it'll- giant like eight foot pair it's rolling down the street demanding chocolate to be dipped into no it but suddenly but suddenly and then it goes both pear shaped but suddenly they're they're um somebody says well um there's there's a saying and someone goes our children go no no i was about to quote proverbs like no you idiot our children are right there and the kids come in so there goes the assassination plot and while those four people are scrambling to recover um the kids are like you're evil mom and dad we're gonna fight you and then alex turns on them and then the gibberim show up and alex goes i'm gonna be a man and claim responsibility and the gibberim go okay fine they set him on fire and kill him which the first time i read that i was like oh my god they killed a child in the comics wow Mm -hmm. um so they set Alex on fire they kill him and that's when like Alex's parents snap and they're like okay right fine you know we all have to kill the gibberim now because this is everything we've worked for is now dust and ashes and the parents push the kids out it's chaos it's madness and and then there's you know just it's it's just everybody's plans go to hell at the same time the thing that's confusing is you had three different sets of plans going on yeah. and mm-hmm. Molly has Molly has custody of this poor kid's soul for a while and you know and they're trying and what's really funny is Molly's holding this container with a soul that they're going to feed these awful immortal beings and it's like Molly that's a very special package please put it down <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and the way they talk down to her and try to downplay exactly how awful it is was yeah. just really amusing as well. Yeah. I, I will agree with the guys that um, certainly, you know, Alex turning out to be the turncoat. Um, it's not you don't have to like it. I mean, you know, I, I actually when I was reading these over the weekend, I brought them with me on a mini vacation. And my son, my 13 year old had never read them before. And he started reading them. And he came to me after he finished the first one. And he's just like, Mom, why did it have to be Alex? Because <laughs> my son, he games, he, he identified with Alex very strongly. Mm-hmm. And so he was very, very hurt a bit that it turned out to be that Alex was the one who who betrayed the rest of them. He didn't yeah. like that. You know, whether, you know, how well you think it was written or how much sense you made it thought, it's, mm-hmm. it still had an emotional impact. You know, whether you, you, you agreed with it or you disagreed with it, you disliked it, um, the impact is there. And, and there's a sort of success to that, that you get invested enough in those characters mm-hmm. that you're upset when one of them yeah. does something that you feel mm-hmm. like is a betrayal. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think that there's something to that. Uh, but at the same time, it feels it felt unsatisfying to me. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. he is a hero. Right. And he is part of this family. And, you mm-hmm. know, you can explain that because he's the cold calculating mastermind. And you could say that all of his relationships with his family were kind of intended to, you know, advance his plan. But it's still mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know, it feels a little at odds with what I feel like I'm supposed to take away from the book about these teenagers and this family they create together and the meaning they have among each other. Um, because, because one of the participants and participants in that was basically using them. Um, I think that's also were... another metaphor for high school though, because this entire book is basically, um, that's too dark. That's too dark, but you're right. You're totally right. <laughs> but very true. So much of this book is, is, is about the psychological obstacles that you face when you're moving from early adolescence to early adulthood and I try not I, to think about this. Well, the thing is, is I was going to say, I can't be the only one here who, ha- who, who during the course of her high school years made the unpleasant discovery that your friends, that a friend's so-called loyalty was 
like that that your friends are capable of deceiving you and and uh, declare loyalty to themselves and 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 kicking the chair out from you at the worst possible moment like that's a teenage experience that's a lot more universal than non-universal and so did you say a friend or all friends no i was i'm 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 deliberately (laughs) keeping the number vague (laughs) but you know i'm thinking of a friend in particular i but you know the betrayal or rather the perceived betrayal of, of one friend by another or the unpleasant discovery that you and a friend are nowhere near on the same page on something that was very important to you. Like that's a huge part of high school for people. The idea that you can't trust your friends unconditionally um, is something that, that you do learn. And I, mm-hmm. I think that Alex was a way to, uh, to connect to that message too, or to, you know, hit an emotional note that a lot of kids that age who might've been reading the book were, were, were like, Oh yeah, I can, I can totally identify with this. So, Oh, I've brought down the house now. Oh, everyone's bummed. <laughs> also don't, don't, um, don't, uh, find somebody who's robbing a, uh, a mini Mart and uh, put them Mm-mm. on your team. No. Yeah. Especially when they're like Bad dropping call. Beatles references and, and the A team and they're way before your time. Wait, am I a vampire? That, that's, that's Brian <laughs> K. Vaughn playing with us and thinking, oh, well, that writer doesn't have his uh, pop culture references right, except that it, yeah. he's mm-hmm. actually intending for it to be that way. But like um, I said, bait and switch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and that's he's, where, he's, that's where you get the, uh, the, uh, the, Joss Whedon reference is made in the text at that yeah. point it's because so so unfair how talented he is oh yeah yeah Brian Kavanaugh yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and, and well and the, the beauty of and you could see it coming of of the solution to the vampire guy is that Carolina lets him bite her and mm-hmm. since she's all mm-hmm. glowy yeah. <laughs> her blood is presumably super glowy or it's something. light solar solar, yeah. Yeah. solar charged right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's, that's it. That's how that works. Mm-hmm. He's, she's it's liquid daylight, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. bad for vampires. Bad like for she me. said, she wasn't sure it would work. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. you know. No, well, that's the that's another one of the great things about the kid superhero mm-hmm. uh, story, right? Is that they're they're uh, this is all metaphorical, but it's you know they're learning who they are and what they can do, and that can be for as an adventure story. That's a lot of fun to have them not really know what their thing is going to be. Like Chase's thing, we think is going to be flame gloves, but in the mm-hmm. end, it's more that he's the driver. And then yes. as, as the story moves along, he has some other things happen um, that we won't get into here yet. Mm-hmm. But, um, but uh, you know, that, that's kind of an interesting evolution that, that they're all figuring out sort of what their, what their roles are. So um, before we talk about where, this, where, where they go from here, I wanted to ask all of you, um, overall, the, this 18-issue storyline that we've got here, Volume 1, um, you know, we've obviously got some quibbles about some of it, but overall thoughts about, uh, you know, what was, go- what was good about it? Did you like it overall? Tony, let's start with you. Um, it was okay. I, I mean, it, it's a little... So I read it for the first time in preparation for this podcast, and I think it was a little hard for me to, it's, to read something by uh, an author that you really like and then go backward. Um, so because I've read Why the Last Man, I've read Ex Machina, I've read Saga, and I feel like this is not on the same level as all those because he did it earlier and he was still figuring things out. So I like all those a lot more than this. So I feel like this was okay, but it, it, it sometimes it's hard to go backward. And I have this problem a lot when I find something and I, I really like it and I want to go out and read all the other stuff by, by, by that person. And as you work backward, sometimes you find yourselves, you know, going back to when things were rougher. I, I always remember after I finished watching The Wire and I probably rewatched The Wire a couple times and then I went and watched like a lot of seasons of Homicide and, and Homicide <laughs> is a good show, but it's not The Wire. And then I went and started reading like 
like all the novels by the books uh, and all the novels by some of the writers for The Wire. And some of those are good. But as you go backward, there's, you know, they get less good. Um, so that it's hard to work backward in a, in a, in a, in a catalog, right? So... So I enjoyed it, but probably, I mean, I think I would feel a lot more positive about it. I don't think I'm as glowing as, as some other folks. If I, you know, traveled back in time and read it 10 years ago, I probably would have been more. I will also say, I just, like, right before reading that, I read uh, the new uh, Ms. Marvel, and that plays with a lot of the similar themes to Runaways in ways that I found a lot more exciting and, and kind of gripping. So maybe that was the wrong, you know, sequence of things to consume. Um, I really liked Ms. Marvel, having just read that last week. It's, so. it's uh, this is, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, this is also a, a kind of book that we don't really see much of now, which yeah. is, you know, the, the other Brian K. Vaughn stuff you're mentioning is all, you know, creator-owned yeah, material. Absolutely. And this is neither creator-owned material nor a creator being brought on to a classic character and doing a run where they've got yeah. interesting stories to tell. This is this weird thing where it, it, Brian K. Vaughn created these characters for Marvel. And so it's, you know, it, it, that does make it different and a little yeah. bit weird. So, and it, you know, there's been, I read a bunch of comics that were kind of about teenagers that were probably geared at to an audience younger than me recently. Cause I just read the new uh, Batgirl and then I read Ms. Marvel and then I read this and I don't know, for some reason, the depictions of, you know, youth are, are, are a little bit stronger, I think, in those in those other ones. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just old now. Yes. <laughs> Aging every day. That's me. Thank you, old man, Tony. Uh, Dan, <laughs> what are your what are your overall thoughts? Well, I mean, like Tony, I, I had read Why the Last Man. I read part of Ex Machina. I don't think I finished it. Uh, I actually just read a miniseries Brian K. Vaughn did about a uh, Doctor Strange miniseries that he did that was pretty good. The Oath. Um I yeah I I feel like I came down kind of middling on it like I I got wrapped up in it but in some ways it's always tricky for me when a when I feel like a story doesn't necessarily stick its ending um, I think in another podcast that we did many years ago I mentioned I had this problem with the British miniseries State of Play which is that I loved yeah. the like first five episodes and I hate the ending <laughs> um, and and part of that is that it just you know it, sometimes you're just sort of left with that sour taste in your mouth of like yeah yeah that was not how I saw this going and. And, you know, that, you know, that's a that's a personal taste thing more than a a, you know, objective assessment thing where it's just like it's hard sometimes when you get to the end of a book and you're like, man, I didn't like the ending to look back at the rest of it and look back at all the things it does well. And I think there's a lot of stuff that Runaway does well. I think that the the comparisons we're drawing with high school and teenage existence is really kind of spot on. I think Brian Gavon is an excellent writer. Um, I really love Saga, which I've been reading pretty regularly. Um, I think everything that I've read by him, I've enjoyed in some capacity or not. Um, and I enjoy the Marvel universe as a whole. And so this one I thought was a great premise, uh, is a great setup. The execution of it is like pretty spot on for a lot of it. And then I just, I just feel like it takes, takes a, takes the wrong turn to Albuquerque somewhere and it just sort of frustrates me. So I, I came down very middling on it. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily go on and read further volumes. There are so many comics to read, especially when you've got Marvel Unlimited. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's hard to sort of devote time to things. You're like, that was, that was okay. That was fine. But you know, I, I feel very middling on it. I think Dan's point about the ending really rings with me where I feel a little jilted by it. And, you know, I think I was actually feeling more down on it until we started the podcast and, and yeah, you guys agree. reminding me of things. And it's like, yeah, those were things I like that I kind of <laughs> got pushed aside by my, my feelings about the ending. Uh, so it was good to be reminded of this because there is a lot of good stuff in here that I think I, you know, and I, I finished it recently. So maybe I'll feel differently uh, with some distance from it. But the ending, uh, you know, wasn't exactly what I was looking for. We we do spend a lot of time 
as much time with vampires in a convenience store or vampires, you know, elsewhere as we do with the ultimate climax of the entire Mm -hmm. 18 issues. Yeah, a little wandering there. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. in some ways you have to fill a certain number of books in an arc, right? I'm sure. And so that makes a good, it's a good moment plot wise for to sort of bring them together because you have that moment where it's like, well, are they all going to get divided up and their petty disputes are going to get the better of them? And it's like, no, they come together as a family and a team in April to overcome that, that, you know, that uh, obstacle. But at the same time, it does, does, there's a little meandering going on there that, I don't mind the meandering. I mind the meandering followed by a ru- what feels like a rushed um, yes. climax, and that that's sort of how how I I I will agree with you there. I, I it doesn't bother me as much, but there, the moment where Alex gets disintegrated is like this half page. Um, panel and then they kind of move on with the story and I'm sitting here thinking on one level that's trying to be fast paced on another level that's kind of a huge thing that just happened Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's given no room for it's just it's Mm -hmm. you know if if you're not paying too close attention you just missed the major plot point in the entire thing you know by by just flipping a little too soon I have that problem where it's like there's not that much space left in this book as I'm getting here how how on earth are they going to wrap all this way up in a in a way that will feel satisfied well and have a coda right because the 18th yeah. issue is it, which I is like a yeah. is yeah, a very nice like, coda yeah, it, it, you know it's revealed the title revealed on the last page that it's 18 this is not just issue 18 but it's about them coming of age really nice but se- issue 17 is really rushed I think I agree with you. Yeah. Shannon, what are your thoughts about Runaways as a whole? Uh, as a whole. Um, and, and about like, the ending. Please yeah. throw that in there. OK, well, about the ending first, then a bit. Um, I, I agree that the ending was a bit rushed, that the pacing was off there. Um, I wouldn't throw out the vampire storyline. I think that was an important small step in where um, they had to learn not only can they not trust most of the adults, they can't always trust the other kids. You know, because the, their idea was they were going to welcome this poor kid because he fed them the story that my parents made me do this. Um, and they were all ready to add somebody else to their group and welcome him in. And then they discover he's not who he says. So that was an important sort of step in their learning process. But again, um, it does, I think, push events towards the end, um, whether it's that particular part of the story or the parents and all of their plotting that pushes it to the point where Alex's sacrifice or his death doesn't get the impact it deserves. Uh, But overall, I enjoy this book. Um, I think that these uh, 18 issues set up a really overall satisfying story as a whole, part of it being because I'm a character person. If I've got interesting characters that are interacting with each other in interesting ways, I'll forgive quite a bit in the way of plot for that. Um, so I was having this exact conversation with somebody about um, the Netflix series Sense8. Um, I'm like a fourth of the way through that right now. And other people watching it are like, is it ever going to start? Is it ever going to start? I'm like, what are you talking about? It's terrific because of all of these people interacting. And that's one of the things for Runaways that really sings for me, that we've got these six different kids, um, each of them with different personalities, different likes, different dislikes, and circumstances force them into this situation and they've got to deal with each other. And that's uh, that's one of the things I love about the book, as well as Vaughn's attention to detail. Um, so many little things fit together very well. 
hints that he drops, the baits and switch that he does. We spend the whole first issue with Molly, or the first couple of issues of Molly, trying to tell her parents or trying to tell the older girls, my body's doing strange things. And of course, we think it's because she's about to have her first period. And no, her mutant side is about to come out. (laughs) You know, brilliant little things like that uh, sing to me um, and, uh, and really work for me. So overall, I, I enjoy this book. Like I said, I wound up sharing it with my son. He wound up devouring the entire run that we have mm-hmm. in the last three or four days. Um, and like I said, you know, uh, uh, character death and, and things like that aside, he really enjoyed them. Uh, very nice. Lisa, what do you, what, give me a, a summary of your feelings about Runaways. <laughs> in 500 words or less, no, go ahead. It's your oh, turn God, it's- is what I'm saying. <laughs> my brain is just seized up. I'm like, it's an essay question. Um, there are many ways in which I lo- I will list them now. <laughs> Sorry. Webster's defines no. runaways. Oh, nice. <laughs> Tony, nice. Um, I, first, I want to say I really appreciated hearing um, Dan and Tony's perspectives on it, mostly because I am trying to sift through now how much of my great joy in revisiting this series is me hopping through the the wormhole and sliding back to 2003, 2004 when I was buying this month by month. And uh, how much of it is um, me being able to appreciate it now, you know, independent of of whatever happy personal context I have. So I'm I'm still trying to sift through that. Um, That said, I still... Unlike, I guess, everyone else, I didn't really have a problem with either the big reveal that Alex is the mastermind or the the incredibly chaotic and rushed ending. Um, just because both of those felt kind of organic to me, uh, you know, that there's that saying that war is either excruciating boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And so I felt like the rushed ending where everybody's plans go to hell at, at exactly the same time, like that, that absolutely made sense where, you know, it just goes to show you can prep and you can plan and you can carefully scheme. And then someone throws a monkey wrench into it sideways. Um, I really think the series works wonderfully as a metaphor for adolescence. And what I liked about it is that Vaughn doesn't make the evil villains like 100% evil where they're off kicking puppies in their spare time and they've been feigning, you know, good parenting. Like the, he, he points out that um, these characters are incredibly complex and that people who do objectively terrible things can do them for reasons that they think are good reasons or that people can change their motivations over time. And I liked introducing that complexity because again, that's something else that you grapple with through adolescence where you have to come to the realization that very few people are a hundred percent good or a hundred percent bad. Everybody does the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the right reason. We all have to live our mistakes, blah, blah, blah. And so I just, I'm of the opinion that you could kind of hand this series to almost any 13 or 14 year old kid and go here and leave them alone with it. And it will, it will be something that they quietly return to over the next two or three years as they're busy, you know, making their way through the world. Um, that said, I do have a tremendous amount of nostalgia for it. And I think that's, that's coloring a lot of my perspective too, because I enjoyed going to the comic book store and picking it up as it went along. And, and, uh, I enjoyed, I, I had the experience of, of, of having everything play out in real time. And I think that add, that added a layer to it. I mean, maybe this is a subject for another podcast, but I think there's a difference between when you binge on an entire comic book series run, which is kind of how I read everything now versus when you are, you know, serializing the story and you have a chance to let it marinate in the back of your head and you get invested and you think about it and, and you're bringing other stuff into it. 
And that's actually something I was going to ask. Um, I think, Lisa, are you the only one who was able to read it month to month? Because Chip and I picked it up when the first uh, collection came out. So we were getting the collections. So we were getting like 18 episodes, 18 stories at a time. Mm. Um, but still, we were reading it back then and not, you know, very recently. Pretty much from 2000 to 2010, I could be found in a comic book store every Wednesday or every Tuesday night after, after I got to be after I got to be good friends with comic book store owners. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and I've bought lots of comics that way as well. But I think that may be one of the reasons that like, you know, Jason, how about you? Did, I, re- did you- I read actually I, I went back and read them because of I read the story about how Joss Whedon was going to be on Runaways. And oh, my God, wasn't that the perfect fit? Because mm-hmm. uh, it, it was a, sh- a series, you know, that was very much tied into the same kind of themes that he covered on Buffy and I thought I've never even heard of this and so that's when I read it and I, oh irony that you know it, the, the stuff that came before Joss Whedon's uh, run was better so yeah. you know no. oh yeah yeah we're not even talking about that but no, no. no. So, you know you do make a, a good oh, there's a I, I really great it. there's a really great point though that um, I think this is you know again Brian K. Vaughn is so bleeding talented it's almost mm. unfair but I do think <laughs> that as he's I, I think as he's matured as, as like a person, an artist, like his stuff has gotten stronger and better. And, and mm-hmm. before he was not coasting, but before he, he was, there was just a lot of raw talent that he was learning how to harness. And now he's gotten to the, now he's gotten to a point where like you just watch him work and you're like, Oh my God, it's a master at work. Um, um, which is also kind of funny because my only complaint about why the last man is I think the last few issues are rushed. So ha, it's the runaways problem all over again. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, that that's my only complaint about Why the Last Man is I, I really feel like the last five issues of that are just kind of like, what the what? And um, <laughs> it's kind of a letdown. But, uh, pacing problems. Yeah, he's got some pacing problems. But, you know, it's so does J. Michael Straczynski. So <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's endemic. It's hard. They, they, you yeah. know, they don't always have control, right? I mean, that's, yeah. you know. Yeah, in the chat room, our friend Moises is suggesting that it, that it may mm-hmm. actually have been a, uh, there may have been an editorial mandate to wrap it up. Wrap it yeah. up. We're canceling and, this. And, yeah. Well, although, although volume two, my understanding is I think volume two started almost exactly like almost right after volume one led off. It was um, it. But but it may have been one of those like we're going to a number one and starting again. So wrap it up. But yeah. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, like 100 Bullets is one of my favorite comics of all time. And it's so perfect and so detailed. And then toward the end, it's like, you guys, what what happened, guys? Hey, before we go, let's talk about uh, if you're reading anything interesting from the world of comic books. Dan Morin. What are you reading? So I just finished reading, uh, well, at least up to where Marvel Unlimited has it anyways, the the most recent, I think, two runs on Captain Marvel, which are the Kelly Sue DeConnick runs. Uh, and they're fabulous. They're fantastic. They're really, really good. They, I really got into them. Um, I really, I had read nothing, none of the old Ms. Marvel um, you know, pre-reboot things with her, um, with Carol Danvers. I, I really didn't know much about the character, uh, and I totally dug it. Uh, and it's awesome, not only because you have a, you know, a female uh, character who is super kick-ass and also, you know, uh, b- about as far from, like, a shrinking violet as you can get <laughs> as far as characters go, um, but also because, like, they do a really good job of making her stories compelling and bouncing between both stuff that happens on Earth that's interesting and sort of the cosmic stories she teams up with the guardians of the galaxy at one point um and you know there's a lot of great supporting characters in here especially a lot of her supporting characters are also women which is fantastic um and so 
and she's Deconic's a really sharp writer. Um, she her stuff is great. I love some of the interactions between um, Carol and her supporting characters, um, especially Kit, who is her like like this this little girl essentially that she's befriended, um, who who is like her biggest fan. Um, and so I, I really, I really dig that. It shouldn't be surprising in any ways that it does have at times a little bit of a Hawkeye vibe, given that Kelly Sue DeConnick <laughs> is married to Matt Fraction. But um, I, I really, I thought it was great. And I've just, I've got to the point where I'm like refreshing Marvel Unlimited all the time. Like, I want more issues. I want more issues. I'm six months behind. So I cannot recommend that highly enough. I, I, I'm really bummed that the movie doesn't come out until like 2018. <laughs> Tony, what are you reading? Uh, well, I just read the first two collections of the new Ms. Marvel with Kamala Khan as Ms. Marvel, uh, which were really fun and, 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 and really great about this, you know, teenage superhero in Jersey City who takes on the identity of Ms. Marvel and has these crazy shape-shifting powers and uh, is, is trying to save her friends. And, and she's an inhuman, I believe, technically. Um, but it was really fun. I really liked it. Um, it felt just really uh, fun and original and had a, a, a new villain and, you know, had that mix of like, we're going to have some cameos from Marvel people you know to let you know that this is important, but also some new stuff, which is, I like when there's new stuff. Uh, I also, right before that, I read the new uh, Batgirl collection um, and that with the, the hipster Batgirl. Um, and <laughs> it was fun, but it kind of made me feel like, like there's all these hipster like references and it's like, I can't tell if that's like an actual band or like a parody of a band or just a fake reference. And it's like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of fun, but it's also like, I feel like this is, I'm like, Five to ten years too old to be reading this, and I don't, I don't know what units you measure coolness in, but I am not cool enough to be reading this comic book. So uh, <laughs> I think, but it's it's geared for a, a cooler, younger audience than me. So maybe you are that audience, and you should read it. Um, and then I've got next. I have not started it yet, but uh, volume two of uh, the Wicked and the Divine, and I really liked uh, volume one. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. It's this. Uh, the premise of it is basically uh, every. Uh, roughly every century, like these gods rise and walk around earth and take on the bodies of like teenagers. And, and in, in the current setting they're you know, they basically all are kind of these rock star type personas that have cults of celebrity around them. And then uh, bad things start <laughs> happening with some of them. It's really, neat. it feels like uh, it, it, it takes me back to kind of like the heyday of, of vertigo comics with like, you know, there's angels and demons, but guess what? The angels are bad. Woo. <laughs> no, <laughs> Which, you know, Ooh, when that great. doesn't describe 40% of Vertigo comics, uh, I'll apologize. But until then, <laughs> standing by that. And that's not a bad thing, but that's what it was. So, Shannon, what are you reading? Anything other than Runaways? Uh, yeah, I'm a very bad comics fan these days. I've been swamped with my job and uh, what little comics I get is Chip thrusting his iPad at me and saying, read this. So, you know, I've seen you know a little bit of Hawkeye, a little bit of Saga, a little bit of the current Sandman. Um, I'm hoping that I can sit down and actually catch up on some of the stuff that I've been missing. Um, you know, if everybody just sort of tweets me suggestions and I'll start making a list of what I need to catch up on. Uh, what I'm thinking about uh, looking at next, though, is going back and uh, rereading the J. Michael Straczynski series from several years ago, Rising Stars. Uh, like I said, I'm currently watching Sense8. And a lot of the vibe from that show, I think, is also in his Rising Stars. And I remember enjoying that uh, series very much the first time around. But it's been a long time. So I'm thinking about going back and rereading that. And you already know how it ends. So you can't be disappointed yes. the second time. So, 
Sorry, that was a, a little shot there. I, didn't, I thought the ending was. I kind didn't of think it was that disappointing. You heard me hissing. Yeah, I, I did. The... Lisa, Lisa, <laughs> and I have talked about Rising Stars. I thought some kind of snake had joined the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, snake, snake cast is happening. Snake cast. <laughs> it's, it's different new. strokes for different <laughs> folks. Lisa, what yeah. are you? What are you reading? Anything you want to recommend? Um, sure. I just finished up Noelle Stevens' um, first trade for Lumberjanes. And um, I also finally read Nimona. I had been reading it uh, on the web, nice. but I I'm so excited I got the for you. But I got the trade and I read that too, and um, that was that was really awesome. Last night I finished volume two of The Wicked and the Divine. Take it, Tony. So I I will not talk. Lisa, to, I you're like not... me, but in the future. How is it? How are I things? am. Future? Oh my god, it's so awesome! It's so awesome! Wow, I can't cars. wait. All I have to do is not die, and I'll get there. <laughs> no, anyway, The Wicked and the Divine is fantastic. I got. Um, uh, I recommended it in the email newsletter I write, So What Who Cares, a couple weeks, I think like a week or two ago. And I actually got email from a reader saying, I was going to unsubscribe, but then you recommended these comics and they're really good. So I guess <laughs> I won't. Reader so... <laughs> retention. Very good. Wow. Yeah. So so that's it. Um, the Wicked and the Divine is by Kieran Gillen or Gillen. I guess it's Gillen. Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. They also did a series called Phonogram, which I love. And um just read the first two trades for that as well. Um, on my list to read, um, we're going away this weekend, my husband and I, and so on my list to read for this weekend, I have volumes two and three of The Massive, which is um, an eco-terrorist thriller type of deal where uh, it's about it's about basically like the Rainbow Warrior. Greenpeace is the Rainbow Warrior, except they don't use the word Greenpeace and they don't use the Rainbow Warrior. And... Um, it's a it's a dark horse title, and it's basically about one of the last eco um, activist groups during an environment during an environmental apocalypse. Um, and they basic the, the crew of the massive is going out looking for a mis- missing sister ship and trying to figure out why why the Earth's environment is in collapse. And it's fun and chaotic. There are um, five volumes total. I'm only on volumes two and three. I'm also reading the new Moon uh, Moon Knight on Jason's recommendation. Uh, or was that Dan's? Maybe it was Dan's. Uh, Although I liked was, it too. It's possible I started reading it during our superhero podcast yeah. recently. <laughs> I had some downtime. Anyway, um, you, anyway, it was recommended. Oh, Warren Ellis, yeah. I, and Warren Ellis, and I also have She-Hulk Volume 1 Law and Disorder on top of my pile. So those are the four things I'm going to read this week. The only, the only shame about the, the Warren Ellis Moon Knight is it's only six issues, I think. I and, know, and I know. It, and then he was off of it and, it, and it's too bad because they're really pretty darn good. I have so much Warren Ellis. If I miss Warren Ellis, I can go back and reread something else. So I, it's just, it's, I've really been lucky that I've been on a roll. Um, also, uh, the, uh, DC has been releasing back issues of green arrow from the Mike Grell run in the 1980s. And so I recently read volume three. Um, I, I tweeted a picture of Oliver Queen going to go see cats in Seattle as a matter of fact, (laughs) but it's really fun to read those. Uh, it's really fun to read the grill stuff now first because the art is so fantastically late eighties and second, because it's kind of fun to see the roots for, um, some of the plot lines that have popped up on arrow, the TV series. So. So I've got, um, a couple quick ones, uh, in the in a rare example of an event series, we've talked about event series and how disappointing they are so many times on this show. I will I will say I'm actually really enjoying Secret Wars because I feel like 
yes, it doesn't matter. And if you read event series because they're going to matter, then this is not the one for you. I enjoy that it kind of doesn't matter. And it's a crazy mixed up. There is a story about how this crazy mixed up world came to be. And there are a few people who've survived from the old universe. And I, and there, it's the most fascinating portrayal of Dr. Doom I've ever seen. I am really enjoying Secret Wars. I cannot believe I'm saying that, but I really am. But I also really enjoyed one of the spinoffs, which is called Thors. And in the Secret Wars scenario, the police are a bunch of Thors from various alternate realities. They are like they're you don't call the cops, you call the Thors. And it is a it is a who done oh, yeah, it. It is a that. it is a stone cold who done it story about uh, a murder and a series of murders and the Thors are investigating them. And it really, I just found it delightful. It is on one level ridiculous. Frog Thor is in it, by the way. Yes. Frog Thor and Beta Ray Bill <laughs> well, are good. in it. And, and, uh, and the tone, it knows exactly what it's being, which is this detective story. Really enjoyable. And then the only other thing I'll mention is Dark Horse is now releasing their trades on Comixology, which makes me very happy because I prefer to read things in Comixology because Dark Horse's app is kind of stinky. And uh, I've been catching up with Buffy Season 10, which I've actually been enjoying. I think they kind of lost their way with Season 9, but um, Season 10 has been uh, really amusing and a lot of fun. So back to the Buffy stuff there. All right. Well, this brings us to the end of the comic book club. Uh, I would like to thank my guests for talking about Runaways with us tonight. Dan Morin, thank you. It was a distinct pleasure. Uh, Tony Sindelar, um, you can be my dinosaur sidekick anytime. Good night, super friends. (laughs) Shannon Sutter, thank you so much for being on. Uh, Pleasure. And Lisa Schmeiser, thank you. Thank you. I had a great time. We will uh, have to do this again sometime soon with some other comic book. Maybe people will like the ending better. Who knows? Maybe not. Endings are hard. Anyway, that is the end of this episode of The Incomparable. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. I have been your host, Jason Snell. I will continue to be that person, but not here until next week. Goodbye. I'm Anthony Johnston, the host of Unjustly Maligned here on the Incomparable Network, and I've already burned through 15 seconds of the oh-so-precious minute I've been given to tell you about the show. It's all about the sometimes strange things we love that other people, well, don't. Some of the guests defending their tastes in pop culture include Will Wheaton, the uh, original Tron, Lee Alexander, the Twilight Universe, Merlin Mann, the 2009 movie Watchmen, Casey Liss, the Dave Matthews Band, Erica Ensign, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and of course, it wouldn't be an incomparable show without Jason Snell himself poking his nose in. Stargate SG-1, the science fiction TV series, plus many, many more. Unjustly Maligned is the show for people who go against the grain. Every Monday here on The Incomparable. Go to UMP.FM to subscribe, and remember, there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Wow, three seconds left. Nailed.